0: This is Why We Write, a podcast of Leslie University. Every episode, we bring you authors from the Leslie community to talk about books, writing, and the writing life. I'm your host, George Sparling, and this episode marks the start of our fifth season of the show. So if you're new here, welcome. And if you're a return listener, welcome back. We've got lots to look forward to this season, beginning with today's guest, While many of the authors who come on our show are part of our low-residency, MFA, and creative writing program, Grace K. Shim earned a master's in our Graduate School of Education and taught for several years before she became a writer. Earlier this year, she published her first book, The No Family. That's No N-O-H. It's a young adult novel full of twists and turns and tons of callbacks to Korean dramas. On this episode, Grace shares how her own family's story and a DNA test inspired her novel, how she got the resources she needed to develop her craft, and what it's been like to see a surge in Asian American authors. Without further ado, here's my interview with Grace. So first, congratulations on your book, and second, welcome to Why We Write.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, so
0: I, I flew through this book, <laughs> but... Oh. It was such a fun read, and I felt like I learned a lot because I haven't read or I haven't watched, I think I've watched one Korean movie, which obviously must change. But first of all, tell our audience a little bit about what the book is about.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So The No Family is about a teenage girl who takes the 23andMe test and decides Discovers that she's related to not just any family, but a rich, super super rich family that lives in Seoul, Korea. And um, she gets invited by them once they get connected to come meet them. And when she does, she gets um, the whirlwind experience of high society, um, Korean culture, and then um, you know meeting family for the first time. And soon she discovers um, a lot of different, you know, the other side of it, which is a lot of family secrets and drama in the experience. So. Yeah, it's a fun, it's like you said, a wild ride.
0: <laughs> and so your main character is Chloe, and she's grown up in Oklahoma. And I gather that that's where you also grew up? I did, yes.
1: Um, so I was obviously, you know, the the age old saying where it's, um, you know, write what you know. <laughs> so I, I taking a page right out of that. I, I wrote about, um, you know, the hometown where I was born and raised in, which is Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's great. So for Chloe,
0: it seems like there's not a large Korean community there. I'm curious what was your experience like living kind of, you know, in an area that doesn't have a, a large Asian or Asian American population.
1: Yeah, I mean there there wasn't really. Um I think the Korean American community for me was a church, you know, um and we had one church that was pretty much where I my um exposure to Korean people. Um, so it was once a week and it was very compartmentalized and those people came from, you know, all over, it wasn't, you know, it's not a local church or a neighborhood church. It was like a church that people would drive an hour to go to because that was Mm -hmm. the closest Korean church or, um, and so we were all very spread out. It wasn't a really close knit community in the sense that we, um, saw each other on a daily basis. And I still I'm still processing that as an adult, I think, um, in the sense that I come compart- I, I tend to compartmentalize friend groups. And uh, that's sort of part of my my day to day life. But it certainly was feeling of a little feeling of being othered a little bit, you know, here and there. And um, I'd like to think it changed, but I haven't gone back since I was 16, which is some years ago. So um, (laughs) I'll just say some years ago, that's good (laughs) enough. Um, But yeah, so um, it was a lovely town, you know, wasn't, you know, anything terrible. It's just when you're you're one of the only Mm -hmm. that's gonna make an impression on you. Yeah, right. That totally makes sense.
0: So one way that your character kind of connects to Korean culture is through korean dramas <laughs> um and i as i said sort of at the top like i have to admit i haven't seen i haven't seen any of the series yet but there's tons on netflix that i've like bookmarked now how would you describe them to the uninitiated and kind of what was your entry into k-dramas
1: oh k-dramas um so <laughs> talking about um compartmentalizing my life this was also a part where i i only share i mean like you said today, it's on Netflix. It's like, It it's kind of still blows my mind how there's a whole section on Netflix. I think Disney plus just aired their first Korean drama this year. Oh, wow. And, you know, not to mention like um, the movies that have like won all these awards and, you know, squid games and things like that. So it's, it's really quite blown up lately. But when I was first exposed to them was uh, through my mom and we did have one Korean grocery store in, Um, our vicinity. And it was very, it did, you know, I think I mentioned that in the very beginning, how Chloe's mom hardly cooked Korean food because it was so far away. Um, And that's really a true lived experience that I had, but um, we would, it would be a thing. We would, I think after church on Sunday, we'd go to this Korean market, which was not that close. And we'd get everything in that week. And one of the things that they had there, which I believe is probably extinct today is um, a Korean drama or videos like that they were videos back then right (laughs) so um they were all like dubbed on videos on vhs's and um it would be like a delayed version of what was aired in korea so it would be like weeks or months after it was aired there and they were weekly or you know so it took forever to get them so sometimes we'd wait um our idea of binging binge watching back then was would be to wait until the whole series was on on tape and then rent out, check out like 10 or 16 or th- whatever, <laughs> however many it was and then bring them home and just like pop in one tape after another. And, um, back then. And now uh, the thing that strikes me the most is that not much has changed. <laughs> I mean, it's, this, it's a formula that works and the Koreans are really just not messing with that. I think. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, They were wild and dramatic um, then, and they're wild and dramatic now. And I think really the only thing that has changed dramatically is probably the cinematography of it. Like back then and and really recently, up up until really recently, they looked like home movies like Mm -hmm. (laughs) um that was this the quality because they were just churning them out churning them out and um there was always something new but now they've worked a little bit on that and their cinematography is like really stellar but um but yeah so i've been watching korean dramas since i was um you know early in my life with my mom in middle school i think i is the earliest one that i remember watching and it was i i think i stayed up way past my bedtime for the first time. Sadly, it wasn't for like a party or anything like that. It was to watch a (laughs) K-drama. I was that kind of kid. Um, So they are very addicting. And I just, you know, yeah. Anyways, so that was my earliest exposure to it. And I think as the K-drama craze started here, I don't I don't think I changed. I think I I probably watch the same amount as I always do, which mm-hmm. is intermittently. Like I won't I'll go through a phase where I'm into them and then I'll just kind of like take a break from them. Yeah. So,
0: The No Family, um the book has a lot of there's tons of family secrets. There's like some potentially like nefarious things going on. There's a little romance, twists and turns, and that seems to be in keeping with Korean dramas I gather. But for Chloe, like, she also sort of part of the book is her separating the drama from the reality when she goes to visit this family that she's never seen before. Um, So in what ways did you want your story to, like, diverge from the tropes while also kind of honoring them?
1: I'm trying to think about um, how it really diverged from... (laughs) Korean drama tropes, because I really felt like it was a lot of them, um, like complete with a happy ending, you know, like a somewhat happy ending. I mean, I think the one thing that we were very, um, my editor and my agent early on um, wanted to do with the ending was we wanted her to have a, ha- a happy ending, but we also wanted it to be realistic and have some loose ends. Um, she's not going to get everything she wants because that's, um, I think that might have been maybe one of the tropes that we decided not to follow. I mean, I she did have somewhat of a happy ending and she had closure, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean she got everything she wanted. Um, and I think that is that's probably um, the storytelling, you know, lesson that I once learned was that um, you know, in young adult characters, will start off wanting something and end up getting what they need and not what they want um and so i think um that kind of is not always the k-drama formula um in that part specifically we might have veered off but i will have to say like a lot of it was k-drama you know um (laughs) it wasn't you know we had and my editor is a really loves I think she knows more about K dramas than I do. So she was like, uh, why don't we throw in this and this and this and this? And I was like, oh my God, that works perfectly. Um so I think we did um do a lot of you know um we had a lot of nods to K drama and um what we appreciate about them in the storyline. One
0: thing I really liked was the sense of soul that you S O E U L that you get in yeah. the, <laughs> and that you right. get in the story. What kind of research did you need to do to to make this story feel authentic?
1: I am very wary as a Korean American who is not from Korea. I was born and raised in the U.S. and I very much identify myself as an American. I am very wary of representing the Korean culture in an inauthentic way. Um so a lot of what I wrote about was seen through Chloe's eyes, which is an American's perspective, which is, you know, not a far stretch to say that it was from my eyes as well. So a lot of the Korean experiences that I wrote about were ones that I had experienced myself when I read. Um, when I was younger, I did go to Korea. Um, again, this is all a part of my compartmentalizing is, is I only saw Korean people together in, in a Korean setting. You know, I never really saw them in like um, a normal setting until earlier. I mean, later in life in like um, school or in, you know, workplace and things like that. So um, my earlier memories of Korean people were either at a, you know, in Korea or at a Korean organization kind of ex- Uh, setting. So I did go to Korea quite often as a child every summer, and I would spend like a month with my relatives there. I use some of my early childhood memories of it. But I also you know, kept going throughout the years until um, my most recent visit to Korea was 2017. And every time I should state, I never feel, I always feel like a foreigner in that Mm -hmm. country. And it's not a bad thing. I do have a lot of nostalgia and memories, but um, it's more like a a familiar setting rather than it's going home. So my most recent, and it's funny that you say research because the clubbing scene in particular. (laughs) um, Okay. So I did go clubbing in Korea when I was 18. <laughs> um, and and back in Korea, there's like this weird like you can club starting at 18. I think maybe even there are some clubs for 16, 16 and older. So when I was 18, I, I first went to Korea and uh, first started to go to cl- Korean clubs. And to be clear, there is an early crowd and a late crowd so, for example, we were the early crowd, and I went clubbing from six p.m. You know, it starts at six p.m. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just letting you know it's very innocent. Um, so we'd go at six p.m. and then we'd leave before midnight, well before midnight, because we had a curfew when when we were there. That you know, I really wanted to to write about this Korean clubbing scene because that was really an eye opener to their culture, um, in the sense how of seeing how men and women meet. I really wanted to write about that scene because it's very different than how they do things here in the U.S. In writing that, after I finished writing it, I felt like, oh, gosh, do they even club like this anymore? Like it's been like over 20 years. So, um, you know, maybe it's evolved. Maybe I'm outdating myself, you know. So I did have to ask my friend who works at um, a Korean drama streaming company and she had to ask her youngest intern, (laughs) who still clubs in Korea. So it was quite the like, you know, roundabout process, because when I wrote this book, it was during um, the pandemic. So not a lot was going on in the the social setting in Korea at that time, either. So um, I was just drawing from my experiences, but then fact checking as much as I could, unbeknownst to me at the time, that was my research (laughs) for this book that I didn't know I was going to write. Yeah. So where did the book come from? I was trying to query out a different book right right in like in February March 2020. And it didn't go anywhere. And I wasn't sure if it was the pandemic or if it was a story. And um, I was kind of struggling. And my sister at the time had recently gotten her results from a 23andMe test. And <laughs> she actually did get um, an email quite similar to the one that Chloe got um, wow. saying that she had a cousin, um, that we had a cousin. It's a really it's not, it's not as it's not dramatic (laughs) at all. I just, I just want to clear that up. Um, uh, the inception of the story really came from that moment out of kind of respect of the other people. I'm not going to tell it, this, the story, Mm -hmm. but, um, it's, it's not, it's not bad at all. Um, but it's just, I think it's private for them Mm -hmm. more than us. Yeah. So the DNA is really fascinating because they're, you know, they were quite, quite literally strangers you know, to us when they reached out to us. And I, my sister actually wasn't going to respond to them. She's like, I don't know them. They're not my cousins. And I'm like, Hey, this is, I, I literally had that conversation. I was like, this is DNA lady. Like, yeah. this is not going to lie to you. So, um, you better reach out and, you know, it, we were kind of nervous to approach, um, my parents cause the link was obviously through them and I didn't want to un- unleash any secrets, but actually when I did mention it, they were like, Oh yes, we did know about mm-hmm. this. And, um, so it was something that was known on, on our side, it was not something known on their side, which was why it was more of a shocking reveal for them. But um ended up just setting up a call with them and talking with them, and it was like a warm. It was so weird. It was. It's not like it was a long lost relative. It's not someone that we knew existed. Like we personally, meaning me and my sister, um, we didn't know she ex- they existed, and um, we immediately felt a sense of kinship. Mm-hmm after knowing what, what what our connection was. And um, I think that was really fascinating to um, just go from strangers to family and in, a, in a second, really. It was just a minute, you know? And I think that was kind of um, an idea that I wanted to play with in the story and how Chloe felt this connection with her, lo- her family that she just met and um, something that compelled her to go to a foreign country overseas, you know, like on a whim. Um, I feel like that was very realistic, something that I would do naturally um, in my situation. Uh, but it was interesting to hear, you know, a lot of people, I think my editor and my agent were just kind of like, what would compel her to do that? Like, that's kind of crazy, you know, things like that. And we tried to make it, you know, give her a sense of like, she had nothing, you know, give her a sense of, this was her only chance, but, um, I think for me, it was kind of like, well, I would, um, and I don't think. Yes. And it seems really rushed and, and really, um, extreme. I don't, you know, but, um, I think it was interesting for me to see that reaction because I was like, Oh my God, no, we actually did meet them like a couple later, a couple weeks mm. later, they, they flew into, you know, meet us. And oh, wow. so it was very, <laughs> yeah. yeah it, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I feel like, no, wait, this is really realistic guys. But, um, I think it's, it's not that easy for an outsider to, if, unless you experience it, I think, um, which is not like a, you need to experience this kind of. <laughs> to, Everybody um, but, do twenty-three um, me. Yeah. <laughs> yes, come on. You got to find some family members and then feel and see what it feels like. I think it was just really interesting for me. That's all. Yeah. Um, in in writing this, but yeah.
0: Why did you choose to write for young adults?
1: It sounds so cheesy when I say this, but I don't think I chose to write for young adults. I think that that was the voice that naturally came to mm-hmm. me, and actually, until I wrote my first because this is not my first um, novel. Um, And the first novel that I wrote, I didn't know what I was doing. I kind of, I kind of, I didn't fall into writing. I kind of wandered into Mm -hmm. writing. Um, I was really interested in it. And I had this story and I started writing it. And um, it wasn't until somebody I was talking about it with somebody who was a little bit more experienced with me that was saying that this genre is young adult. Like specifically, I was just writing Mm -hmm. and I had no clue. I didn't, about genre, age group, things like that. And they were the ones that told me specifically, this is young adult. And I was like, oh. And um, when that didn't work out, I wrote another one that was clearly young adult as well. And I was like, oh, this must be my voice. Like, um, so you know what I mean? Like, I think I just, it was one of those things that um, found me rather than I found it, which sounds very cheesy to say out loud, but (laughs) I think it was very accurate. Um,
0: How did you start to learn? you know, about structure, what, what worked, what didn't, did you do
1: classes
0: or mentorships or?
1: Yeah. So, um, when I, um, wandered into writing, I have, so I have three kids. Um, and I think my youngest was probably like one or two, you know, I always tell people the reason why I, I found writing was because I was at a point in my life and I had chosen this. like you mentioned earlier, I got my graduate degree from Leslie as an educa- to be an educator for early childhood. Um, and so after I graduated, I worked in the classroom in a first grade classroom for two years. and then you know my husband and I got married and we had kids and we decided that you know, the best way to use my skills were to be with my kids at home early on, because that's kind of where my quote unquote training came from. It was early childhood education, mm-hmm. pre K through second. Um, I felt like I really could do the most impact in my children's lives by staying home with them during that time. So that's, a, that's a lifestyle I chose. And um, it was really great until the third one came along. And then <laughs> I was ready to move on. But obviously, you can't move on from your children. So, <laughs> um, So I was, you know, and I tell people that I felt like I was I had no options. And that was truly the only reason why I explored writing because that was the only thing that I could do. And, um, and I, it's not that I didn't love it or didn't want to do it, but I never saw it as a career option my whole life. You know, that was never something that was presented to me as something that you could make a living out of or make money from. Um, So I always just saw it as like this extracurricular hobby or, you know, something you do for fun. I dipped my toe back into being a teacher's aide for a little bit. And I realized that wasn't, you know, that part of my life had probably moved on from. I couldn't go back to school, you know, and I did look into um, NFAs and writing programs. And I just felt like at that stage of my life and career, it was probably a ship that had sailed. So I signed up for all the free things that I could. Um, SCBWI is what I was told, um, critique groups.
0: And will you say what SCBWI stands for?
1: Society for, of Children's Books for Writers and Illustrators, the CBWI. Okay. Yes, <laughs> I feel like that's correct. It connects you to like seminars and, um, you know, um, there's a large conference that happens once a year in Los Angeles, which was really pivotal for me. I mean, it, it's a entire weekend filled with all sorts of seminars um, and sessions with Uh, industry professionals and authors. And um, beyond that, I got to connect with so many people that um, actually debuted with me this year. The biggest thing that happened that year was that was the first year that I I actually paid to have my writing critiqued um, by an industry professional. Um, And these are things that, you know, like a lot of Agents and editors will um, have as a service on the side or offer um, at these um, events. And, you know, I, I had for like maybe a year been writing with a critique partner, but that was getting critiqued by other. Uh, people who are just as inexperienced as me. So I think I had reached a point where I was like, I think I want an industry professional to give me some feedback to see am I at least in you know headed in the right direction? Is there something here? Um, and I think it was like I don't know, like fifty fifty dollars for a first chapter, and I felt like that was okay. You know, good. It was probably you know it was good good money spent mm-hmm. to see to see if I was ahead of the right direction. And I had this lovely editor who gave me an amazing feedback. Um, You know, she said, and looking back, that chapter was very, very much awful. It wasn't, (laughs) you know, a structure. There was nothing. It was just based on like, Oh, I love to write this. I would love to write this. So I wrote Mm -hmm. this and she um, was just so kind about it, you know, is what struck me. And I think it's an industry where critiques can come off very, um, not harsh, but you know, if you're straightforward, it can come off as this writing is terrible, you know, and I think she was really kind about it, but balanced. I still remember the opening line. She said, this is lovely. What a lovely image. So I think um, some of her compliments stuck out with me. And then um, some of her tips also kept stayed with me throughout the years. She said, think about your best or your most favorite, you know, books that you Loved or enjoyed, and reverse engineer them, see what worked for that book, and try to, you know, try to do that for yourself. And I, I really took to heart that. And today, to this day, I, when I'm stuck, I'll read some, reread some of my favorite books and um, remind myself of what really made me fall in love with the book. And hopefully that would have transpired into my own writing. And the loveliest, loveliest part of that was flash forward, I don't know, four years later. And that became my editor. Oh, nice. Yeah. So she, when we had our call, I had to remind, I reminded her and she goes, I don't remember that at all. And I'm like, (laughs) well, that's, that's really good. Because if you remembered me, then it was all for all the wrong reasons. (laughs) Uh, Beyond that, I also did, um, the Andrea Brown, um, writing writers retreat. Andrea Brown agency is the largest, um, children's agency, um, out there and, um, they do, uh, a writing re- once a year, they do this writing retreat workshop at Big Sur. And um, oh. I did that with a couple. It was lovely. So I, <laughs> yes, it is beautiful. And the best is, is that you're, um, self, you're there's no reception. Right. <laughs> so like you have zero, zero, um, you have zero um, distractions. Mm-hmm. And so, and that was really amazing. You get paired with two different groups, with two different mix of writers um, in your genre or category and you have um, a different industry professional moderating those. And what they do is they spend two full days of critiquing your work twice. So they critique it once, they give you an opportunity to rev- revise or work on it or critique something else the next day. Um, and that was truly pivotal for me because that was the first time I got validation that this was something, I'm I'm headed somewhere. The two best things that I can never talk more about is as these mentorship programs. Um, that are out there, they're all free. Um, and they're just like from the goodness of other writers. And so to pay it forward, I recently became a, a mentor last year with my mentor, oh. um, Jesse Cusitanto, um who I really credit for a lot. We're, we're still good friends and we chat all the time. But there are for aspiring writers out there, there are um, more than one ways to I think get to your accomplished goal if, if being a published author is being your um, goal. And um, MFA is one of them. And um, there are certainly other avenues. Um, yeah. That's great. So, what is
0: next for you?
1: Well, um, I, so the, the No Family was um, a two book deal. Um, oh, actually, sorry. The No Family was a part of a two book deal. Okay. They're not, there's, not, it's no, like, not a companion book, okay. but two standalones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, to clear that up. So, I'm currently working on the book too. That is to be determined as to when it's going to come out. Um, I am also working on an adult book. I think what happened during the time that I was trying to be um, a young adult author is I, my, I was maybe when I first started writing, I was still feeling very tied to my young adult roots. Mm. And then during that time I crossed over <laughs> to feeling more like a full fledged adult <laughs> than a young adult. So I'm starting to feel, you know, like really comfortable in the adult mm. world as well. And so I hope that um I hope that I'll find the same success there that I have found in young adults. Um, so those are the things that I'm currently working on. Yeah. I feel like yeah.
0: This is like a, I don't know if this, this might be an overstatement, but it feels a little bit like a golden age for Asian American literature. Like there's just so much more available now, which is just wonderful to see.
1: Totally. Yeah, totally. I think, you know, I'm a part of a writing group that's all Korean um, authors and they, we all started together again through a mentorship program, author mentor match. And, um, when we started together, none of us were agented and none of us had a book deal. And the fact that we all do, and one of them is a New York Times bestseller. It's just, we we don't take that lightly because we, I think we were, happened to be there at the start, you know, when it all kind of was starting. Um, I think we've had very meaningful and important discussions about, you know, whether this is, a trend, you know, like a trend, I hate to say that, because Mm -hmm. is this, a you know, this is not a trend. But at the same time, like, you know, there's guilt associated with capitalizing on something that might be feeding a trope or a trend or fetishizing um, a culture. But at the same time, we feel like this is, you know, an opportunity for us to talk about our culture and represent it in a more accurate light. And I think, you know, like you mentioned with the no family, like one of the things that I really have been blessed with hearing, you know, I feel so grateful because um, one of the things that people really talk about um, with my book is being exposed to the culture as if they were, you know, like through Chloe's eyes as a tourist, you know, and, and seeing it um, in hopefully a non A non-tropey way. I don't not painting a really accurate portrayal of the country and not characterizing it was really important to me. And I think that um, when every time somebody brings it up, I feel like I contributed something to you know that landscape of not um, I uh, fetishizing the Korean culture. I think it was it's a mix of emotions, but I you know ultimately we're happy that there is more space because. There wasn't before. We feel very uh, blessed to be a part of that movement. Yeah.
0: Um, And if people are interested in more podcasts about that, we we did have Axio um, many moons ago on the podcast. And um, she's written tons of, well, now tons of (laughs) uh, YA books that have gotten great press. And also um, this last season, we talked to Andrea Wong, who wrote Watercress. Yes. Yeah. It's so good. But yeah, so so there's more if you want to listen to more on our podcast, but <laughs> there's great conversations with them. And Axie is Korean American. Andrea is Chinese American, to be clear. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about your book. This has been great.
1: Um, I am so happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me and for talking with me.
0: Grace K. Shim's debut is The No Family. You can find her on Instagram and Twitter and learn more about her on her website. The links will all be in the show notes. And we'll also have a link to the transcript of our discussion, which is on the episode page. If you like this episode, check out our interview with New York Times bestselling author Axie O. And with Andrea Wong. Those links will also be in the show notes.